we're going to be. <clears throat> we're going to be in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Yeah, I made a mistake on the uh, slide. Sorry about that, Benjamin. We're going to be 6 through 10, which I'll, I'll read here in a few moments. Do you write letters? Any letter writers? Handwritten? Not many. Actually, none. Not one. Uh, this, is, this is a good start because you proved my point. Um, letter writing, to some extent, has become sort of a thing of the past. When you, when you think about um, like romantic relationship letter writing, you might think of wartime. Um, sending letters overseas during world wars was very common. Um, just last night, some friends of ours uh, said they wrote letters back and forth to one another just like 19 or 20 years ago. Um, crazy to think about it, that was that long ago. But um, while one of them was studying abroad, they would write letters. Actually, the the, the, the boyfriend would send one, I believe, every day is what we, what, what we were told. So um, that's a commitment. It's a lot of stamps. But apart from romantic letter writing, uh, even letter writing between friends um, or from like a mother to a daughter or a father to a son or a grandparent to a grandchild um, seems to be rare. Like we've We've become dependent on technology, so most of our words are typed out or texted, not written, and often get lost in the depths of our hard drives. Um, you were trying to write an email to someone only to revise it and revise it and revise it and revise it and revise it, and revise it uh, at the computer, and you worry um, over like the appropriate tone of the email or the content itself. We've all been there. Um, 18th century people worried about that too, actually. Benjamin Franklin, an, an expert letter writer, he owned a manual uh, titled The Art of Letter Writing that helped with tone and content. And it stated, many being at a loss how to address the persons of distinctions either in writing or discourse are frequently subject to great mistakes in the style and title due to the superiors. It then included a detailed list of how to address a letter. Whether you're addressing to the king, the king would be like, to the king's most excellent majesty, sire, or may it please your majesty. Right? So this, the entirety of this, of this um, manual was just to help people in their letter writing. And if you wrote a letter to a well-known person, with a detailed address, this is kind of interesting too, they might actually be offended because the expectation would be that mail carriers would know who Benjamin Franklin Philadelphia is. That's all you would have to put. Benjamin Franklin Philadelphia. Like if you got into detail, it would sort of suggest that, that maybe he's not really a big deal and that they would need more direction. Over the years, I've received several letters from my parents and have written um, a few for my kids or to Sarah as well. Sadly, um, without much organization to, to place them in safekeeping, um, though if I did some digging, digging, I could probably find them. 
So e email in short form grammar has largely replaced letter writing, but only in recent decades when you think about it. Only in recent decades. God, though, used letters to reveal his heart to us. God used letters to reveal his heart to us, to reveal his character, to reveal himself. The Apostle Paul wrote many of those letters as divinely inspired literature, 13 of them to be exact. There were letters. It's how he expressed himself to people that he loved as well, Paul. He wrote letters to both churches as a whole, so like dear Christ Church, like to us, and we would read it, right, from the Apostle Paul, um, and also to individuals. And so when I say something like in Paul's letter to the Galatians, like don't, don't hear kind of this stoic, cold, like, no, it's, it's a real letter written by a real man with real words to real people who are going through real things. In one of Paul's most commonly quoted letters to the Galatians, he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul hadn't actually been crucified, of course. He was very much alive. Likely, he was, when he wrote these words, he was on his third missionary journey at this point through Macedonia. He certainly still lives. His heart is still beating. But what he is very much saying and working to communicate is this, that Christ loves him and lives in him. In other words, everything about Christ, the heart of Christ, the perspectives of Christ, the motives of Christ, the attitudes of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the hospitality of Christ, the justice of Christ, the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, all of that, according to Paul, is, is now living in him. So that now, even though Paul would say, I am still in the flesh, it is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who lives in me now, Paul would say. It's what compelled Paul to live and how to live. And it's what got him out of bed every morning. As Dane Ortland writes, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. Paul had learned at this point in his life that he had the heart of Christ in him. He no longer needed convincing of that. He had staked his life on that. He had a surety about that. Paul, at this point in his life, wanted to simply live a life from the heart of Christ. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove. He wanted to live from his salvation in Christ and from his identity in Christ, not for salvation or for a new identity. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. Do you? Do we? Paul was set, he was fixed, he was convinced, and he was confident and knew with confidence that the Son of God, who loved me, he says, according to Galatians 2.20, had given himself for me and then to me, and he wanted others to know this, and so what did he do? He wrote letters. He wrote letters. 
If you're a parent, you know that much of the Christian life is comparing sort of the love of God to the love that a parent has for their own kids. I find myself wanting nothing more in life for my kids to have a minute to minute to minute to minute to minute to minute to minute confidence in the full acceptance and love that Sarah and I have for them. There will be times where they do not feel that, but that is my desire. That there is nothing in the world they could ever do to make us love them less. They could spend their days trying and trying and trying to make us love them less, but our love would only grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Paul had arrived at this place as he gazed on the heart of Christ, as he steeped himself in the truth about who Christ was and is. And I hope over the past several months, this has become true to an extent for you as we've looked at the heart of Christ, as this is our final morning in it. And so here's what I want to do as we wrap up our series. I want to take us to Romans chapter 5 for a few minutes, and I just want us to park there and go nowhere else. That's it. I want to park nowhere else, and in it, I want us to see the lavish heart that Christ has for us, for you. That's it. That's it. I just want you to see the lavish heart of Christ that he has for you. That's my singular aim. And it's frankly the most appropriate and the only way to really finish out this series. I want to make four observations. And here they are up front, just so you kind of know where we're going. Um, Here is how his heart is lavish for you. Four things. His heart is lavish for you because um, his... Here is how his heart is lavished for you, because he is for you when you are weak, verse 6, in your sin, verse 8, while you were his enemy, verse 10, and then with his life, verse 10 as well. So first, we define lavish. Lavish, um, any like great um, word people here? Any wordle people? Like, what's lavish? Let's talk a little bit. What do you think? A synonym? I have a bunch, but curious if you have one. Bountiful is the first, first one I wrote down. Did you read this? Over the top. You, Logan was up here checking out my notes. Over the top is in there too. That's the third one I got. Given excessively, endlessly, extravagantly. Richly was my last one. That made me, you guys are good. Oh my gosh. I, had, I totally forgot that I put that. <laughs> that like, you, <laughs> you totally made my day and then just blew it. You shouldn't have told me. Oh, man. That is incredible. Spectacular. <laughs> I was wondering why you guys were laughing so hard. Like, they're loving that they're just getting it. <laughs> I don't even know how to move on. Um, so that's what it means. That's lavish. That's lavish. But, but really, we, like, to pivot here, we, we really do get, we get squeamish about, like, being lavished upon, don't we? We, get, we feel weird about that. We feel weird about a lot of this stuff. Like, most of us aren't great at receiving gifts, Right? I'm not a psychologist, but I'm, I'm sure that we can identify several factors that contribute to this. 
like we don't, we feel weird about it because we feel unworthy. Maybe we feel guilty. Maybe we like just feel like we don't want to owe somebody something in return. And so we, we don't like the idea of, of somebody sort of spoiling us. It's just true that most of us find it really challenging at receiving help, receiving gifts, even receiving love, because we feel like we're in debt to that person. Um, and so when it comes to the lavish heart of God for you, it's no different. That's just, it's important to recognize that, that you're going you're gonna to feel that pushback. It seems too excessive, doesn't it? And so listen, if I can just do one thing and one thing only today, it's to help you see the lavish heart of Christ that is for you, that requires, and there's some nuance to this, but it requires, I'm gonna use the word nothing. It requires nothing from you. And here's why, because from you, there is nothing that would make him go, okay, now I finally love you. Nothing you could do. Like God say, thank you, Judd, for finally following through on your end of the deal. We're going to see in Romans 5, the lavish heart of Christ is for you, and it requires actually only one thing, and it's not something you do or something you produce or something you perform or really anything that comes from you. It's just something you receive. And if you have a hard time receiving earthly gifts, you are going to, which we all are going to, to some extent, we're going to struggle to receive him. We just are on most days. But he still asks that we do. He still asks that we do. So let me read the text real quick. Um, <clears throat> Romans 5, not real quick. It's, this is God's word. I don't want to rush it. Um, Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I'll just finish it out in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the first, the first um, observation here is that uh, his, his heart is lavish for you um, because he is for you when you are weak. When you are weak. What does he mean in verse 6 by referencing weak? This is what he means, really. He means you're spiritually weak. He means you're morally weak. He means you're an imperfect, you have an imperfect moral compass. That's what it means to be weak. Um, in contrast with the perfect godliness of Christ. That's what it's in contrast to. Um, freshman year of college, I came home from spring break while my friends went to Panama City, Florida. Um, for no other reason than the fact that the Holy Spirit took my hands and he placed them on the wheel of my 1995 tan Honda Accord and drove me north from Cape Girardeau, Missouri to St. Louis. 
That and the fact that I had no money. I was totally out of money. But both are true. Both are true. And when I got home, I had some of the hardest conversations with my parents about academics, grades, my future, um, about chewing tobacco. Lots of conversations about chewing tobacco. I know, don't judge me. I gave it up 15 years ago, but it, it had me for a minute. I mean, what else do you do in Cape Girardeau, Missouri? There's not much to do there. Um, but most importantly, faith. Faith. At the age of 19, I decided it was time to really begin to figure out what all this was and what it meant to me. So I, instead of going to Panama City, came home, and I read the book of Romans for an entire week, and I just sat in my parents' basement and read Romans for the whole week, uh, and chewed a lot of gum and ate a lot of candy that my dad bought me to help me break my bad oral habits. And since that week, um, I have lived from, okay, don't hear, not always, not every day for Christ, like, I've lived from Romans 5.8, from Romans 5.8 and the surrounding verses. And the words have never gotten old. How could those words get old? Like we go, we go back to this verse over and over and over again because there is no more succinct and jaw-dropping summary of the good news of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture than that of, but now God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that in your weakness, in the place and space that you are furthest from the Lord, he would meet you there. In that moment that maybe you felt like you were the furthest that, you, that you've ever been or could ever get away from God, that's where he meets you, and then a little bit further. In any other relationship, think about this, the further away you get, the more the other person feels isolated, rejected, dismissed, not with Christ. When you are most morally fractured, in your most lost and confused moments, when you are at your weakest, Christ is there. The heart of Christ is lavish because the most perfectly holy, spiritually strong Jesus is for you, even when you are imperfectly unholy and spiritually weak. As Puritan minister John Flavel put it, as God did not at first choose you because you are high, he will not now forsake you because you are low. How lavish, how lavish. Secondly, his heart is lavish because he is for you, according to verse six, while you were, according to verse eight, while you were still sinners. So you're weak, you're also still a sinner. Christ died for you. Notice what it doesn't say. Notice it doesn't say that while you were still sinning. This is why you were still sinners. There's a difference between sinning and being a sinner. The idea of being a sinner is a state that you cannot help yourself in. Paul would also put it this way. In his letter to the Ephesians, he would say, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You were dead in your trespasses. Several years ago, we bought a golf cart. Um, it's an old golf cart, um, so this isn't like a humble brag about a loaded easy go or something. 
it's old and we got it for real cheap before pandemic prices shot up the price values of golf carts. You can't find a golf cart for like anything less than five grand right now or something. We got it for a steal from a friend. Um, we thought it'd be nice to have it at this little rental property we have up in Michigan. And I left it up there over the winter on a trickle charge. But we have the house winterized. And in the process of having it winterized, the power went out in the shed and, um, and the batteries froze and became totally unusable. Um, not, not even with a charge would these batteries work. And so we had to have a local mechanic go pick it up and then swap out the batteries, an entirely new battery pack, a new heart. The point of that story, dead means dead. There's no recharging happening here. There's full replacement. Still sinners means still separated from God because we choose and chose to love created things more than the creator. Like we love dad's stuff more than dad. It was for that reason that Christ died that we might be reconciled to our father so that he in turn could give us his life, give us his heart. Not once you got up and walked towards him. You were running the other way spiritually dead, and he swooped in and wrangled you back to himself. The story about the thief on the cross is one of the most helpful passages. The thief next to Jesus was forgiven only because Jesus said so, because he says, you're mine. And today you're gonna be with me in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. He had, the thief had no time for reconciling himself to anyone that he had committed crimes against and certainly no time to prove himself worthy to God. While he was still a sinner, Christ died for him. Next, thirdly, his heart is lavish because he is for you even while you were his enemy. So you're weak, you're a sinner, you're dead in your trespasses, and you're an enemy. And so not only weak and unholy, but a sinner running the other way and an enemy to be an enemy is to be a rival. It's to be a rival, to be at odds with him. Like, um, I love the, the way that you, you can sort of like, um, like, I'm establishing my own kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? It's replacing thy kingdom with my kingdom. My kingdom come, my will be done. That's what it means to be an enemy because God clearly makes it plain to us that it's all his, did you ever feel like, though, you were an enemy of God? I, I honestly, I struggle with that one because I, I, I didn't, and more often, more often than not, I don't. Because the word enemy, there's something about the word enemy. That's why I like the word rival, because I'm like, oh, I can get that. I try and, like, compete against him and creating my kingdom every day, you know? So when I take a days-long inventory of my own agenda and think to myself, very little of my life revolves around seeking the will of the Lord and all that I do. It seeks and serves self and family and everything else around me in my life. And here is the craziest thing about the lavish heart of God. The lavish heart of God comes along and says, it's okay. It's okay. Like, I get it. I, I know Son, that you love yourself and your agenda more than you love me most days. I get it. I know that it's really hard for you to um, 
not love your, your kids and your wife and, and, your, and your church family and your more than me, I get it, I know. That's grace. That you can view God not as a father who comes along and goes, how could you? How could you love yourself more than you love? No, he comes along and says, I get it. I understand, and I still love you. And I still welcome you into my presence. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon wrote, you have often left him, he has never left you. You've had many trials and troubles. Has he ever deserted you? Has he ever turned away his heart and turned off his compassion? No, children of God, it is your solemn duty to say, no, no, he has not, and bear witness to his faithfulness. Finally, his heart is lavish because he is for you, ultimately with his life. So not only when you are uh, weak and a sinner and an enemy of his, but um, he is ultimately with you, for you with his life, with all of his life. You might know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but do you know 1 John 3.16 is actually very similar, it's just a little more succinct. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. In John 18, John 10, 18, he makes it clear that no one takes his life, he lays it down gladly, and we know he didn't stay dead. He just laid it down as an act of love. But then he doesn't stop there. He gives us himself. Paul wrote to his mentee, Timothy, that Jesus gave us his spirit. The prophet Ezekiel would put it this way. And I will give you these prophetic words. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a malleable, soft heart. The lavish heart of God is for us, and then he gives us himself while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies. To what end? For what purpose? Is the big question. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus do this? Why is his heart like this? Well, at the very beginning of this series, we just, we quoted Tim Keller, and it's just, Keller's like, he loves us because he loves us. He can't not. May we sort of not require more explanation from him? May we simply see his heart as the words of Scripture and the letters written to us reveal and receive it? I want to end with a, with a paragraph from Gentle and Lowly. I mentioned resources. This is a book that's been helpful in this series, written by, again, Dane Ortland, who I've referenced several times. I just want to read a little um, paragraph out of here, and then, and then I'm going to pray for us and invite us to come to, uh, to the table this morning to respond to the good news of the gospel. Hear these words. He says, do you realize what is true of you if you are in Christ? Those in union with him are promised that all the haunted brokenness that infects everything, every relationship, every conversation, every family, every email, every awakening to the consciousness in the morning, every job, every vacation, everything, everything 
will one day be rewound and reversed. The more darkness and pain we experience in this life, the more resplendence and relief in the next. As the character says in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, reflecting biblical teaching, says this, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. If you are in Christ, you have been eternally invincibilized. And how does he make us alive? According to John Owen, he loves life into us. His resurrection power that flows into corpses is love itself. Ephesians 2.7 is telling you that your death is not an end, but a beginning, not a wall, but a door, not an exit, but an entrance. The point of all human history and eternity itself is to show what cannot be fully shown, to demonstrate what cannot be adequately demonstrated. In the coming age, we will descend ever deeper into God's grace and kindness, into his very heart, and the more we understand of it, the more we will see it to be beyond understanding. His heart is immeasurable. That's the lavish, lavish heart of Christ for you. Pray with me. Father, may we receive from you your love, your heart for us is lavish. We have to confess, though, that we often feel as though our hearts are light years upon light years upon light years away from yours most days. And so we would just ask that you would help us in our unbelief. Would you undo things in our hearts that need to be undone and then do things in our hearts that need to be done? that we may receive, that we may receive and know the heart of Christ that is for us. You are a good, good, good Father. We thank you for inviting us into your presence time and time again. We pray all this in the name of Christ who makes that possible. Amen, amen, and amen. Um, for our communion, we're just... There's a little verse, verse 9, that <clears throat> there wasn't really a point for. And verse 9, it references being justified by his blood. Um, and theologians have taken scripture and worked to kind of give, uh, um, like, some structure to, to biblical teaching for us that's helpful. Um, we're not all theologians, and we don't all love reading this kind of stuff, but it, it is helpful if you, if you, if you look at it properly and... and, and it's not an errant scripture, but theology is the study of God, and we try and kind of give some frameworks that are helpful to kind of work within. One of those frameworks helps us understand what it means that um, we've been justified by his blood with four words. Propitiation, that means that he, um, he removes, he removes your, um, or expiation, he removes your sin. Uh, propitiation, uh, he removes God's wrath. Um, justification, 
He then extends you God's full acceptance, Christ does. Redemption, he then purchases you, uh, for, he purchases your, your, your freedom for you. Um, and then forgiveness, he restores the right relationship for you. And then pacification, it means that um, he, in Christ, he actually allows you to have peace with Christ. Um, and so those words, expiation, propitiation, justification, redemption, forgiveness, pacification, they're all theological words we kind of, theologians have made up. They're very helpful in understanding what this meal represents. And so this morning, we're just going to take a couple extra minutes for communion. And just my encouragement is very simple for you, just to come as you're ready. And then just to see the heart of Christ, um, just to see the heart of Christ in, in your time of prayer and reflection. And then plead with God just to help you live there just to help you live there and stay there for as long as able and live in the lavish love of Christ on your behalf. And so church, you can come, come as you're ready to come.